Hi there, and welcome to this podcast entitled, Does My Child Actually Have ADHD? My name is Roy Oki, and I'm the founder of Applied Life Strategies. I am an advanced certified life coach, a certified CBT practitioner, and a member of the Academy of Modern Applied Psychology. I have several years of counseling experience, both professionally and ecclesiastically. I've been married almost 37 years, and we have three sons, all grown and on their own, so there's a good chance that I've had enough life experience to be able to relate to many of the challenges that you are currently facing. Let me first state that I am not a pediatrician, psychologist, or psychiatrist. I take the research that I have found from these experts, and I pass it on to you. And I encourage you to do your own research on any subject we discuss in this podcast to arrive at your own informed decisions. In our past two podcasts, we discussed the developing brain and anxiety in children. We will be referring back to those principles we learned in those podcasts, so if you haven't listened to them, you might want to go back and review them. If you don't have the link to podcasts one and two, contact me through my website at Applied Life Strategies, and I'd be happy to send them to you. This podcast is part three of a four-part series that I'm providing in partnership with Anita Barron, the owner of First Class Preschool and After Class, located at Calgary, Alberta. These podcasts are being offered free of charge to anyone who would like to listen in. If you're interested in receiving this series, you can contact me through my website at appliedlifestrategies.com and I will email you the links as they become available. However, if you are a parent who has a child enrolled in first class preschool and after class programs, you will receive all four of these podcasts automatically to your inbox. So feel free to share them with anyone you like. We are discussing four topics in this series. The first was my child's brain. The second was anxiety in children. Today we're discussing, does my child actually have ADHD? And the fourth episode we will discuss, my child is struggling, what is wrong with me? Today's topic, does my child actually have ADHD, is a tricky one. It has received a lot of attention over the past few years and can be very emotional for some parents. I really hate assigning labels to children or anyone for that matter, but it appears to be the popular thing to do. And the number of labels seems to be growing. The reason I hate assigning labels or diagnosis to children is that it puts them into a box, which can be very limiting. Once a diagnosis is established, they often are seen as broken and need of medication or special treatment, when in fact, they may actually not. In this podcast, I'm going to be referring to quite a bit to an article written by Dr. Christopher Lane of Northwest University which appeared in Psychology Today. His article is titled, ADHD is now widely overdiagnosed and for multiple reasons. Feel free to look up the article where you'll also find references to several other articles on the subject. Now for the purpose of this podcast, I'm not here to raise alarm or call your child's pediatrician incompetent. It is simply to raise awareness of the apparent overdiagnosis of this condition and things you might be able to do to help your child outside of medication. First, let me share my personal experience with ADHD. We had some school teachers suggest to us that two of our sons had ADHD and recommended medication. Now, first of all, let me assure you that I did not take a school teacher's opinion as the gospel truth. We all know that school teachers are not qualified to make that kind of diagnosis, but we did actually appreciate receiving their input because it gave my wife and I the opportunity to investigate what was actually going on in our boys' minds. For one of our sons, his symptoms were, well, he had a lot of energy and was kind of disruptive in class, so we were less than convinced. But trying to be responsible parents, we took him to our family doctor to see if he felt he needed to be referred to a pediatrician. 
After relaying the teacher's input and answering the doctor's questions, he told us that he'd be happy to refer us to a specialist, but to him, this sounded a lot more like a typical healthy, energetic boy than a case of ADHD. We agreed with this and didn't pursue any further diagnosis. It turned out that our doctor was correct as this behavior diminished as he grew and matured. With our other son, though, it was quite obvious to us that he was very different than his brother and his behavior was seriously affecting his school and social life. He was actually diagnosed with ADHD, and we started him on an appropriate medication. For this son, the medication was a gift that opened up his world and improved it in many ways. Despite the initial side effects of a month or so of moodiness and some challenges with sleep, his life was significantly improved with the medication. With that in mind, you might be asking, Roy, if you could go back and do it all again, would you change anything? And my answer would be, of course I would change things. Since then, I've gained far more life experience and knowledge than I had at the time, but we did the best we knew how with the tools we had. I'm not suggesting we would have changed our decision to put our son on medication. What I am saying is that I would have tried a few more things first to see if they would help enough to avoid the medication. For my purpose today is to offer you a few ideas and tools that you can try that I didn't grasp as well as I could have at the time. Before we get to those tools, let me take a minute and look at some of the reasons why ADHD is so widely overdiagnosed. According to Dr. Lane's articles, some of the reasons are low levels of agreement among specialists on what constitutes ADHD, ambiguously worded diagnostic criteria, excessive reliance on educated guesswork and stereotyping, carryover from related diagnoses, overrating the male externalizing behavior, which basically means boys tend to have a much more difficult time being quiet and sitting still than girls do. And the relative age effect. This is an interesting one. The study found that children born close to the cutoff date for school or kindergarten are up to 60% more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than those born shortly after the cutoff date. They are also twice as likely to receive psychostimulants such as Ritalin as children born a few days later. So what does that mean? The article concludes that some children are being diagnosed and medicated for ADHD simply because they are immature compared to the other children in their grade. Approximately 1.1 million children in the U.S. have been inappropriately diagnosed with ADHD and over 800,000 have been treated with stimulant medication due only to relative immaturity. So if your child is one of the younger ones in his or her class, you have the right to be suspicious of an ADHD diagnosis. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong, but you do have the right to be suspicious. Here are some of the conditions that are commonly mistaken by specialists for ADHD. Of course, as we just mentioned, relative immaturity. There's also anxiety disorders, epilepsy, traumatized children, sleeping problems, autism, learning challenges such as dyslexia, sensorial disorders, Tourette syndrome, mood disorders, and such. Children are even diagnosed with ADHD because they are highly gifted. Now, just to let you realize how difficult your child's pediatrician has it when diagnosing this, the DSM criteria for diagnosing ADHD is very broad and subjective and appears to be getting broader as time goes on. For example, the three primary DSM symptoms are failing to finish things, has difficulty sticking to tasks and shifts excessively from one activity to another. Very subjective. And as much as I hate to say it, to me, this describes almost every five-year-old I know. 
Children can often focus on activities they love for longer periods of time, but they have very short attention spans by nature. And what may seem like an attention deficit to us as adults might be quite typical for a child of that age. So what do we do when even pediatricians can't seem to agree on the required criteria? Well, since I'm not a pediatrician or psychologist, I can only make personal suggestions. The first thing that I recommend is that as a parent, you never accept an ADHD diagnosis from anyone other than a specialist. The other thing I would do is to try some of the strategies that I'm going to suggest shortly before I agreed to medication. Now, despite the fact that I personally saw medication give wonderful results to my own son, I wish I had known about these tools back then because it might have helped avoid medication. Again, might have. It's important that you understand that I support your decision as a parent to medicate your child if that child has ADHD. You are the parent, it is your final decision, and no one has the right to judge you. You know your child best, and because of that, I'm on your side whatever you decide. If you would like to try other options first, however, allow me to suggest 10 things that might help relieve some of the ADHD symptoms in your child. All right, you ready? Number one, limit screen time. Two, increase physical activity. Three, increase, sorry, increase playtime. Four, teach problem solving skills. Five, lose the drama. Six, parent on purpose. Seven, improve healthy eating practices. Eight, sleep. Nine, decide if you yourself might be a major contributing factor to your child's stress level. And 10, teach failure. Okay, let's look at these individually. Number one, limit screen time. I put it number one because it seems to be the biggest problem. I once heard a child psychologist call excess screen time the plague of the 21st century. I discussed this in the last podcast, but it is so important that it merits reviewing. According to the Academy of American Pediatrics, excess screen time causes the following in the young developing brain. You ready? Gray matter atrophy. Now, gray matter is the darker substance in the brain and spinal cord that is often associated with the intelligence capacity. Loss of white matter integrity. Now, this is the region of the brain and the spinal cord that is almost entirely composed of nerve fibers. Pretty important. Reduced critical thinking. Impaired cognitive function. That refers to the brain's ability to process incoming information. Impaired structure and function of the brain. Lower attention span. Impaired language acquisition. Dopamine addiction. If you're wondering what that is, dopamine is a reward hormone that your body releases to the brain, which is accompanied by intense emotion. So, this is what causes your child to crave video games, for example, because beating that next level gives him or her a dopamine rush, which can become very addictive to the neolimbic brain. Impaired development of fine motor skills. Difficulty focusing on important things. Delayed social skills. Sleep deprivation caused by blue light. And it has a high relationship to obesity, anxiety, and depression. To me, these all sound like ADHD symptoms. Screen time is a digital drug and it must be consumed responsibly. Your child is not an exception to this rule. So, how much screen time is too much? A good place to start is we need to try and figure out how much time your child is spending in front of a screen. So, once you've done that, 
multiply that number by at least two, and you'll probably be pretty close to how much time your child actually spends in front of a screen. The average eight-year-old spends four and a half hours a day in front of a screen. Trust me, most of the parents don't realize this. The average teenager spends over seven hours. And if your child has a smartphone, it's almost guaranteed their numbers are higher than that. Now let's compare these numbers to the recommended screen time as per the Academy of American Pediatrics. Children ages zero to three should never be exposed to screen time. That means zero hours in the first three years of life. It's just too harmful for the young developing brain. Sadly, smartphones and tablets have become a favorite babysitting tool for parents today. Children ages four and older should be limited to a maximum of two hours per day. That's four and over, right up through teenage. The following are some of my personal opinions and suggestions that could help you control the screen time that your youngster is exposed to. Okay, number one, no child requires a smartphone. Children have survived quite nicely without them for thousands of years and they can still do so today. And when you consider the damage it can cause your child, it just isn't worth it, even if it makes them slightly less cool than their friends. If you'd like your child to carry a phone, talk to your service provider about finding one without access to data or the internet. Never allow electronics into your child's bedroom. Electronics should only be enjoyed in common areas of the home and in the presence of responsible adults. I'm going to stop there or I could talk for hours about that one. Install an internet router that allows you to assign passwords specifically to your children and that specify what days and times it will be available. You know, I once had some parents try to explain to me that children today are just built differently than we were. They assured me that children today don't want to use their imaginations and be creative the way we did because they're wired different than us. I suggested that evolution actually takes hundreds of years to even make the smallest of changes. And that if our grandparents had been born today, they would have been just as good at and addicted to technology as our children are. I don't think they believe me, but the reality is children are good at technology because it's a native language to them. They learn it easier and quicker than we do simply because they earn it or sorry, learn it at a very young age. Finally, excess screen time can be especially damaging because it amplifies ADHD symptoms. Dr. Patrick Landman suggested that we could greatly reduce ADHD in children if we simply limited screen time, increased activity, and improved our children's diet by cutting out sugar and caffeine. Speaking of which, number two is increased physical activity. Exercise releases endorphins, which relieve stress in both children and adults. A sedentary child has a much higher risk of exhibiting ADHD symptoms than an active one. So if you have a high energy child, be sure that they are burning off that energy being physically active rather than in front of a screen. Number three, increased playtime. Stress is a primary trigger of ADHD symptoms. Playtime is the most effective way to reduce stress in children, so make sure your child gets plenty of it. A child's imagination is a therapeutic gift from nature. Four, teach problem-solving skills. We explore this concept in quite a bit of depth in the last podcast, along with some suggested techniques, so you may want to review that. Problem-solving requires higher brain thinking and focus. 
These are two great exercises for children with ADHD. It also brings with it self-confidence and self-confidence reduces stress and allows us to manage our life without drama. So, number five, lose the drama. Of course, there are times when drama is quite fitting. For example, let's say I fell out of a boat and I'm not wearing a life jacket. Now, for me, that's bad because I don't know how to swim. Therefore, getting the boat's attention so they'll come back and save me is absolutely vital. This is an instance where drama is very useful because I need to do everything I can to get their attention so I don't drown. On the other hand, dealing with a frustrating child is a terrible time to introduce drama because it adds another layer of stress to an already stressful situation. The reality is that 99.9% .9 of the time, drama makes every situation worse. If you, as a parent, struggle with staying calm, you should give serious thought to seeking coaching or counseling. Make sure that you are not a major source of stress in your child's life. Number six, parent on purpose. Those who parent on purpose have a plan. They act rather than react. They already know how they want to handle difficult situations before they happen in order to keep drama out of their child's life. They hate wasting teaching moments. We discussed that quite a bit back in podcast number two, Anxiety in Children. And these parents always live by the rule, never let the situation become more important than the child to be loved. All right, number seven, improve healthy eating habits. It's remarkable how we so easily overlook the relationship between inputs and outputs. Are the nutritional inputs you provide your child capable of producing the developmental outputs he or she requires? As stated earlier, Dr. Patrick Lamon suggested that we could significantly reduce ADHD in children by cutting out sugar and the caffeine in their diets. It's remarkable how we ingest things that act like poisons to our body and call them treats. Wow, talk about a wolf in cheap's clothing. I like to recommend that parents speak to nutritionists if they have questions. Nutritionists can offer an easy and simple way to significantly improve your child's diet, which can have remarkable benefits both now and long term. Okay, eight is sleep. We all know how difficult a tired child can be. In our modern culture, however, children are becoming more and more sleep deprived, which is resulting in all kinds of developmental and behavioral problems. So make sure that your child is getting enough quality sleep. So how much sleep does your child need? Well, children ages, let's start with ages three to five, typically require 10 to 13 hours of sleep a day. And that's including naps. Children ages six to 12 need nine to 12 hours. Teens, 8 to 10 hours, if you can convince them that's a good idea. And remember that screen time interferes with sleep, so be sure to shut off the screens at least an hour or two before bed. Number nine, are you a significant contributor to your child's stress? Well, the reality is that most of us as parents are, but there are things we can do to reduce this. As a life coach, I'm convinced that with some help, most of us can learn to manage our thoughts and feelings. So if you need help in this area, get it. Number 10, teach failure. I realize that on the surface, this might sound a little ridiculous, especially if you haven't listened to the two previous podcasts. But the reality is that failure is the path we must pass through to arrive at success. I've even heard some experts suggest that we should provide opportunities for our children to fail. Now, before you sound the alarms, what that one means to me is 
We need to teach our children the value of trial and error and never stand in the way of potential teaching opportunities. Remember that anyone who has achieved greatness in any undertaking first had to pass through adversity and failure. So teach your child to be okay with failure. It's simply process. And we do this by praising effort rather than result. Again, refer back to the previous podcast. In summary, I urge you to only accept a diagnosis of ADHD from a qualified specialist. And regardless of whether you decide to medicate your child or not, try to implement some or all of the above suggestions and see if they help because your child really is worth the effort. And again, if you would indulge me these final thoughts, your child is not broken and neither are you. You're both doing the best you can with what you know how and the tools you have. It's okay if you're not a perfect parent because there simply are none. And it's okay if your child is imperfect because there are simply no perfect children. What Anita and I wanted to offer you with this podcast series is an opportunity for both of you and your child to learn and grow. If you have questions or require further information about your child care needs, please contact Anita's group through the website at firstclassafterclass.com. If you're new to First Class, keep in mind the website address is spelt with the number one. So it's the number one, S-T-C-L-A-S-S-A-F-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S dot com. If you'd like more information about coaching and your relationship with your child, you can contact me through my website at appliedlifestrategies.com. Now, if you're not a parent of a child who is enrolled in a first class program and would like to receive the balance of these podcasts as they become available, you can also contact me through my website at appliedlifestrategies.com. Have a wonderful day, and I look forward to discussing My Child is Struggling, What is Wrong with Me? on our next podcast in about a week's time.